And so many pastors today, they lick their finger, they hold it up to the wind, and they go with the prevailing winds when they are supposed to be preaching healthy doctrine. And if you do so, you're considered old-fashioned, you're considered antiquated, but those pastors, even some evangelicals who meet the Lord Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ are gonna have incredibly deep regrets. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Sharing Christ in Difficult Days. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 say, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from truth and will turn aside to myths. Yesterday, we studied the charter's mandate in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and today, Pastor Carl will be preaching on the charter's motivation found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. The week before last, I had a 70-hour week, and I woke up like most pastors do on Monday with a preacher's hangover, as we call him. Call my son-in-law, he says, you know, Mondays are like really tough. He's in his 30s. I said, it's no different if you're in your 30s or 60s. When you emote under the Spirit of God for hours, and all week long you're moving, and God's working in your heart and mind towards a message, you're just like wiped out the next day. And I met this individual, and I certainly didn't feel like speaking with him. But I needed to be ready in season and out of season, and I'm so glad I did because he was so open to the truth of the gospel. Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote in the 11th chapter, he who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. The Living Bible paraphrases it this way. If you wait for perfect conditions, you will never get anything done. Verse 2 here in the NAS simply reads, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. The CJB, the complete Jewish Bible, renders it, proclaim the word, be on hand with it whether the time seems right or not. The net translation of the Bible says, preach the message, be ready whether it's convenient or not. Now this by no means indicates that we're to be brash or insensitive or harsh where we invade someone's privacy when we're not welcome. Sometimes in the name of evangelism, I've seen people kick doors down. But understand the favorable or unfavorable, this in-season or out-of-season, the convenient or inconvenient sign, a time that he is describing is in relation not to the hearer but to the speaker. That we, are need, that we are to be available to the living God for whatever he wants us to do. And God may open a door when you don't feel like preaching or sharing the truth, but we are to be faithful. This is not some warrant for being rude or brash, but neither is it a warrant to be lazy or self-centered or just consumed with our own little world where we don't talk about the Lord Jesus. You say, that's what we pay you to do. I'm glad that God allows me to spend the best hours of my week in the preaching and teaching of the gospel, 
but I cannot win souls for you. I'll work with you, but I cannot take your place and the avenues in which the Lord will put you. So preach urgently. Secondly, we are to preach the word revealingly. We are to preach the word revealingly. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Now, from God's point of view, he considers our preaching is relevant if it has three characteristics to it. Reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. The first word is reprove. It's a Greek word that describes behavior that is out of sync, out of line. It violates the will and the standard of God. It has the idea of both convincing and convicting the person with the truth of Scripture. The second word's a little bit different. It's a little stronger. It's rendered here, rebuke, where you lay blame on the person. As the Word of God is preached, it should be clear that if a person is guilty, they know they're guilty. They know they are erring. We don't hold back. We are to be faithful to what God says in spite of what people may think, whether it applies to the believer or to the unbeliever. But then he adds a third word, exhort. There's a need for exhortation because those who have been reproved, those who have been rebuked also need some encouragement. People need to know how both their sin can be forgiven and their spiritual lives can be strengthened. To, to quote an old rule that we often state as pastors, our role is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. And so you're going to come into all kinds of settings. Dealing with a family with a 12-year-old girl and seems to be troubled and the grandparents are burdened and care and love this child deeply. Only to find out that her mom is a lesbian and now is living with a man who is trans, changed his gender into a woman. What evil. You say, how does a kid like that stand a chance? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I tried to encourage them. God is big in spite of circumstances, even, yes, for this 12-year-old girl. And there are principles, these principles of reproving, rebuking, exhorting. It needs to be applied not just in the pulpit, but if you're a dad and you're shepherding your family and you're teaching your children the truth of Scripture. It might be in an ABF that you're leading or sixth grade class of Awana boys or girls. Preach it revealingly. Third, we're to preach the word patiently. We're to preach it patiently. Let's read further into the text. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instructions. So while we're to preach the word with a sense of urgency, we're to preach it with a, a sense of patience. The herald of God, the preacher of God must be patient. In other words, we never resort to human pressure, human manipulation to try to force or coerce people into making a decision. We are to be patient. There's a sense of urgency. There should be a fire in your bones, but it is to be done patiently. Sometimes people will meet me out in the hall and they say, you must be discouraged. I said, why? No one came down front. I said, that's not how I measure success. 
Success is not measured by how many people come down front to join the church or to confess Jesus or to be obedient in baptism. Success is being faithful to God to preach the word. And in its season, Psalm 1 says, fruit will be born. And there are seasons where it just seems like we're having this series of all these decisions and there's other times where you're just faithfully teaching and planning the word. I had a man who called me from Maine and they were broadcasting, Rick, we hadn't done it in ages. We don't usually do it on the radio and on the station up there. Would you like to know God as your friend? And so he downloads it. And he said, I listen to it every day going to work. He was Roman Catholic. It was contrary to Catholic doctrine. And he said, I would be arguing with you on the radio. And I, long story short, he gave his life to Jesus. And he wrote me to tell me about it. Look, sometimes when you preach the word, you preach it patiently. God is in the process. He's sowing a seed. Other people like the church at Thessalonica, on the first time the gospels heard, because they were so prepared, so ready, people responded and called upon Jesus in faith. So fruit is often seasonal, and it comes in series. Just be faithful. D on your outline, we must preach the word doctrinally. Not only must we be urgent and revealing and patient, we are to be doctrinally sound. Let me read now all of verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So he's giving the proper balance that needs to be heeded in our day. Not only are we to preach the word, but we are to teach the word. And the two are not separated in the New Testament. A pastor is not simply to tell stories that are interesting and give a lot of illustrations, though they have their place, because Jesus obviously used illustrations. But they are to explain the meaning of the text. They are to teach doctrine. Uh, The King James renders it teaching. That's what the word doctrine means. It means to teach. And doctrine is not dry and dusty. Why? Because doctrine represents who God is. When you're learning biblical doctrine, you're learning about who God is. I was telling a gentleman just recently, I said, when you understand God's commitment to Israel in Romans 9, 10, and 11, you're learning about a promise-keeping God. He finishes chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And someone might say, wait a minute. You said you loved Israel with an everlasting love. It seems like you forsook them. And so in chapter 9, he elected them. In chapter 10, he explains why they're in unbelief. In chapter 11, and how he's going to restore them. Why? Because he keeps his promises. So when you understand biblical truth, you're understanding what God is like. And unfortunately, we live in a day where there's a lot of shouting and emotionalism and self-help kind of psychology. There was a seminary called Grace Seminary that was once a great seminary. I have some of the books from some of the leaders in the 40s and 50s, and they brought in this guy who turned the seminary into psychobabble, and now it's virtually dead today. Because we're not to preach psychology. We're to preach the Word of God. 
And that's why it's essential when God looks at the qualifications of an elder, among other things, he must be apt, he must be able to teach. And so pastors are to teach the word as they preach the word. And that's exactly what Paul did. Remember when he gathered the elders in Ephesus, or from Ephesus on that beach at Miletus, he said that he faithfully declared anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly and from house to house. And then he adds, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So that is the mandate that Paul is giving to Timothy. People tell me, well, doctrine divides. Yes, it does. It divides truth from error. It divides the sheep from the goats. I went to a conference in Columbia, South Carolina, 20 years ago. It was a Promise Keepers conference, and these brothers just kept begging me to go and begging me to go, and I didn't really want to go because I wasn't excited about it, so I finally went, and the good coach, who's nothing more but an emblazed, wild, charismatic, stands up and he says, doctrine divides, so I'm not here to preach doctrine. Nothing could be more ignorant than what he said. We are to teach doctrine. The word simply means teaching. And certainly God used that movement, but it died for a reason because it erred from the major mandates that God had given to us in Scripture. And so preach the word urgently, revealingly, patiently, and doctrinally. But in addition to the charge's mandate, secondly, I want you to think with me about the charge's motivation. Paul is not content to give Timothy the essence of the charge. He now goes on to give the basis for the charge. And so having given him the responsibility to preach the word in verses 1 and 2, now in verses 3 and 4, he gives the reason to preach the word. And I want you to notice there are three arguments from the contemporary scene in which Timothy finds himself that this charge needs to be grounded. And it's especially true as you move into the last of the last days. Because as Paul said to Timothy, times would go from bad to worse. Preach the word first because men will not want to hear the truth. Preach the word because men will not want to hear the truth. So verse 2 begins, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Notice the little three-letter word for. It's the Greek word gar, transliterated G-A-R. It means because. In other words, Paul is proceeding now to give us the reason, the basis on which this charge to preach is founded. He's predicting a time will come when they will need to hear healthy or sound doctrine, and folks won't want to hear it. Now, of course, he's speaking prophetically. At the time that he wrote this, he says the time will come. He's looking into the future. But ladies and gentlemen, let me announce to you, the time has arrived. We are living in a day where Paul says that men and women and boys and girls will be tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Now, certainly it appears from what he has written earlier that this would have application in Timothy's day. But Paul in 3.13 is anticipating the end of the age where this would grow and deepen and broaden. And that's why he uses, of course, this future tense. In 1 Timothy 4.1, again, he describes the latter days when men would depart from the faith. And really, one of the greatest needs in our day 
is for men to teach sound doctrine. 45 times in the New Testament, God commands that sound doctrine be taught. And for God to say it that many times, this is not secondary, this is central to what a church is to be about. And again, people say, well, I don't focus on doctrine because it divides. Yes, truth from error, sound teaching from erroneous teaching. It takes those who are misinformed and ignorant, and as their mind is renewed with truth, it equips them to stand for Christ and to live the kind of life that that doctrine is given. Now think about it. You should never apologize for doctrine, and again, the word simply means teaching. We have books like The Teaching of Sigmund Freud. That's just another way of saying Freud's doctrine. Or there's a book we have, The Thought of Charles Darwin. That's another way of simply saying Darwin's doctrine. And as Christians, we should never apologize for the God who created Darwin and Freud, who wrote a book that will long outlive any of the books that man has written. God wants us to be mature in our thinking. He wants us to be stable in our behavior. And it's impossible apart from sound doctrine. Now, think your way through this. Some people have not thought it through. They're misinformed. They're agnosis. They are ignorant that they have a basis of authority for everything they believe and embrace. Even the atheist, he has a basis for believing what he believes. He says there is no God. And the basis for his belief that he'll often come back to you with is you cannot prove that God exists. Well, we don't have to prove that God exists because it's self-evident, the New Testament teaches. It's self-evident through creation for God's invisible attributes, his divine power and eternal nature are clearly seen through what he has made. And it's evident through conscience. Man's conscience within reflects the law of God, Romans 2.15, that was written in his heart. And that's why the Bible never really defends the existence of God. People think, well, I need to learn the ontological proof for the existence of God or the teleological proof for the existence of God. No, God devotes one half of one verse to atheism. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The agnostic has a belief system. He says it's impossible to know whether God exists. He too goes against the clear revealed light that God has given. And so every person has some basis for believing what they believe. Maybe their parents taught them this way. And again, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Now think of this 12-year-old girl who no doubt is being hammered, I know she is, with evil. And she's being taught the wrong things. And we need to teach her the right things. And again, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. People say, well, I'm sincere in my belief. You can be and you can be sincerely wrong. The question you must ask is, is my belief based on the word of God? Because everyone has a theology. The atheist has a theology. He says there is no God. The agnostic has a theology. He says you can't know if there's a God. The liberal has a theology. If it's based on something other than scripture, then it is not sound. And interesting, the word sound is a medical term in the first century. You could render it healthy doctrine. And God knows what germs are to the physical body, bad doctrine, 
is to the spiritual body. And so many pastors today, they lick their finger, they hold it up to the wind, and they go with the prevailing winds when they are supposed to be preaching healthy doctrine. And if you do so, you're considered old-fashioned, you're considered antiquated, but those pastors, even some evangelicals who meet the Lord Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ are going to have incredibly deep regrets. Timothy, they may not like it, but it's the kind of spiritual food that is essential to their health. I have a good friend. I told you about him once before. I'll never forget what he told me there in Dallas. He said, as a general rule, if it tastes good, spit it out. Well, listen, I may teach some things that don't taste good to you. Sometimes I have to serve some spiritual broccoli and cauliflower. But we need to embrace it because it's good for us. God is truth. The scripture says God cannot lie. Preach the word, Timothy. Men need to have sound doctrine. Preach the word, secondly, because men will choose bad leaders. Men will choose bad leaders. Preach it because men will not want to hear the truth, but preach the word because men will choose bad leaders. He underscores that truth here in verse 3. Follow along. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Now, it's interesting. The lexicons underscore, well, lexicon is like a, uh, a dictionary as it applies to a particular language that you're studying. And most pastors have at least Greek and Hebrew lexicons, not typically Aramaic because it's so small, the portion of Scripture there. But uh, the word tickled in the lexicon Itching in some translations is a figure of speech that refers to interesting, spicy bits of information. Do you know that there are people who go to church every week who go to church because they want to have their ears tickled? And when you say what they want to hear, especially in a way in which they like hearing it, they love you as a preacher. And by the way, I failed to mention that the word sound also could be rendered healthy. We get our word hygiene directly from the Greek word. And so some people don't want good spiritual hygiene. They just want to come to church to be made to feel good. And there's a whole movement in America today. It's the church growth movement. And as a pastor, I get more mail than I care to open. And from some organizations, I don't even bother to open it. I just throw it directly into the basket because they're trying to sell me something of what I should do in order to make the church grow. And then, of course, beyond that, you have people who soften sin, who redefine sin. And so you have even evangelical pastors who say, it's okay to drink. It's not okay to drink. That is ignorance of the highest point. Go to my website, searchthescriptures.org. Some of the greatest biblical scholars in the history of the last 200 years have taken the same position I have. Now, it's ignorance to say that it wasn't real wine. But God forbids strong drink. And strong drink was intoxicating, not whiskey and rum and the distilled liquors that come a 1,000 years later, but wine that was fermented and unmixed with water. And so the Didash, the Talmud, Midrash, 
commentaries typically argue that you mix it in a five to one ratio. Do you think for a hundred years, nearly a hundred years, the seminary I went to, they said that the, the, the student body could not drink, much less any of their professors. Do you think they were just ignorant? I think Dr. Chafer and John Walvert and Dwight Pentecost and Howard Hendricks, you think if these were all just ignorant men, they were not ignorant at all. It's the church today that's ignorant. Moody Bible Institute for over 100 years said, no, you can't drink. But now you can drink, smoke, and gamble in moderation. Do you think they were just ignorant that they were just, oh, you know, prohibition, we need to follow the culture? No, they were following the Holy Scripture. And so we live in a day where sin is de-emphasized and pastors will get up and they'll share about movies that they have seen, R-rated, centrally oriented movies that Jesus Christ would never watch with them. But they'll watch. And then you got guys like a Creflo Dollar with his prosperity theology. Listen to these words. Creflo said, Jesus bled and died for us so that we can lay claim to the promises of financial prosperity. That is heresy beyond heresy. No wonder he had that person in his church last week. A person who's advocating the murder of little babies in the womb. A person who, like the president and vice president, is heralding perversion as a way of life to be protected. Because these are false teachers. Joe Olstein, he attempts to de-emphasize sin, and so when he's being interviewed on a morning show, he's asked why he doesn't speak about hard things and sinful things. And he said, and I quote, there's enough pushing people down in life already. When they come to my church or our meetings, I want them to be lifted up. I want them to know that God's good, that they can move forward, that they can break an addiction, that they can become who God created them to be. And then, speaking of sound doctrine, to use his own words, he uses the word doctrine, and he says, no, we need to veer away from teaching doctrinal differences. And he says, and I quote, these days people want to know if I come to church how it's going to help me to live my life. And so he's being interviewed on Oprah Winfrey, and of course she has these special broadcast specials with Harry and Megan and not long ago with Joel. And she asked him directly, are there many paths to get to the one God? To which Joel responds, I believe, Oprah, that Jesus is the way to the one God. But I believe there are many paths to Jesus. That's heretical. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Paul will say there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's one mediator. You can't go through Buddha or Vishnu or You have to come through Jesus. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here's what the apostle John said in his second letter. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. The apostle John, as you read his second letter, would say, Creflo and Joel don't know the Lord. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures 
at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 019. One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question both biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. Join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.